the Hemingway hero. He is someone to whom something has been done, and the key to his persona is loss. Many of the classic noir-era stars naturally embodied this concept through their presence, such as Bogart, Lancaster, Douglas, and Mitchum. Porfirio credits it to Mitchum's passivity and heavy-lidded eyes. These, he says, reveals the vulnerability at the heart of his noir protagonists. Over the course of his career, he'd appear in such classics as Crossfire, Out of the Past, Cape Fear, Friends of Eddie Coyle, and The Night of the Hunter, as well as in many westerns and war movies. But it wasn't until the 1970s, as the post-classic noir era started gaining strength, that he had the chance to take on an icon of the genre, Philip Marlowe. Thanks to British financier Lou Grade, Mitchum starred as the Ur Detective in two adaptations, which we'll be looking at tonight. But Mitchum in his 60s is very different than Mitchum in his 30s, or Bogart, or Powell, or Gould for that matter, and we'll discuss how this impacts not just Marlowe, but the adaptation around him as well. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective? I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films and then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Tristan Johnson, joined by my friend, Brett Belzer. <laughs> tried to trip me up. You're spelling my name wrong. I don't even know what that says there, but. Uh... It's two of your John favorite drinks. Johnson. This is Trizak John Trizak John. Oh, it is. You. Oh, it's really clever. I like that. I. Uh, I'm drinking tea right now. Thank you. Uh, and tonight we're finally bringing Robert Mitchum onto the podcast. But instead of looking at some of his great earlier roles, we're examining two performances closer to the end of his career when he took on the mantle of Marlowe. Later, we'll discuss 1978's Big Sleep, but for now, let's talk about Farewell, My Lovely, from 1975. Mitchum, the last of the tough guys, meets Rampling, the hottest of the new broads, in Raymond Chandler's sizzling murder classic, Farewell, My Lovely. Why don't you come over here and sit beside me? And I've been thinking about that for some time, ever since you first crossed your legs, to be exact. All right. Farewell, My Lovely. Directed by Dick Richards, written by David Zelak Goodman of Logan's Run, Straw Dogs, and The Eyes of Laura Mara's fame, and starring Robert Mitchum as Philip Marlowe, plus Charlotte Rampling as Helen Grail. As in previous iterations, Marlowe is hired by recently paroled convict Moose to track down his missing ex-girlfriend, getting him drawn into conspiracies involving cuckolded millionaires, stolen jade necklaces, and a floating casino just off L.A. Stop us if you've heard this one before. All right. This might be the moosiest moose that we've I mean, had. he is a He's, great moose. So yeah, I should have. Um, <laughs> I've forgotten the actor's name now, but this moose is actually a professional wrestler, I believe, that they brought he, in it, for. He's he's just sheer brute huge. force and uh, and and like eyes kind of bulging from his head. Uh, what a what a presence moose is, uh, and I and I, I buy into the 
the the lovelorn brute kind of act that he 100 percent. yes this is jack o'halloran who'd also go on to be in superman and superman 2 i think he's one of the uh other kryptonites one of zod's followers in that i believe uh and also of note i guess uh he is in dragnet and the flintstones oh yes <laughs> Well, um, I mean, I'm sure he's yeah, as tall as John Goodman, so you need somebody that big to. I think so. Gosh, um, so this is our our third go round with um, with farewell, my lovely. Yeah, it's and it's interesting watching it done again, but as a period piece, even though it would now be concurrent with the original adaptations that we watched. Right. Uh, Clearly, this is more um, more in line with with uh, with Chinatown's you know, attempt to to recreate the scene of the nineteen well thirties in Chinatown's case for forties uh, here. But the um, this is that we've now reached the era where where we are are looking backward, where we're creating period the retro noir. from from the uh, the golden age of Hollywood. Yeah. But before we get too far into that, uh, Robert Mitchum, he's finally in the podcast. He's a big favorite of mine. Uh, I wouldn't, I'd probably still put Bogart and, I mean, I don't know. They're all great. Uh, the, the three other actors I named uh, earlier, you know, Humphrey Bogart and uh, uh, Dick Powell. Well, not Dick. I mean, Dick Powell's fine. I, no, I was referring to the, uh, you know, Humphrey Bogart, Burt Lancaster, and oh, oh, uh, oh, sorry. Kirk Douglas. Yes, our Mount Rushmore, Rushmore of classic noir protagonists are, yes. are leading men. Like, I put him up there, Robert Ryan, too. I, I, all these guys. Uh, the essay that I quote from briefly by Porfirio is, does a really nice job, like, summing up their inherent core appeal for each of those actors and like the the type that they played within the noir protagonist and and i love them all they all have place in my heart yeah mitchum's got just a tremendous presence and um and for for those who haven't watched any robert mitchum uh, i mean you've got you, you things to me ha- it has to come back to night of the hunter because it's one of the most terrifying villains in cinema history uh he he is um he is so frightening in that role uh and uh, and and it's um night of the hunter is certainly in noir territory though though it's almost a monster movie also yeah it, uh, it covers a lot of it's, different it's, it's so gothic it's so it's a lot of different things uh, but but for noir bona fides uh, out of the past is a, a tremendous tremendous yeah, I mean, that was a title that we talked about doing for this series, and ultimately we have plans for an out-of-the-past season that is focused on, you know, somebody from your past suddenly turning up and getting the, the ball in motion there. So we we felt that while him being a private detective is a part of that story, it is not the main thrust of that story. So we will we will definitely return to that. There's plenty of other titles, itching titles that we'll, we'll get to at some point or another, but uh we're starting off with farewell my lovely and big sleep from the 70s and what a what what a a strange way for for mitchum to enter into our our series um i'm glad to have him here Uh, he is always a, a welcome presence but i i can't help but feel that mitchum 
more than more than someone like Bogart, who's just so um, so comfortably who gets so comfortably settled into the persona he's created. Mitchum swings a bit more in quality based on how good of a director he's agreed with. Well, he's so uh, again going back to the Porfirio quote that passivity that reads on screen and makes for a really intriguing protagonist. It's hard not to project that onto the actor as well as somebody who just kind of like shows up and does his thing. And like, if the director's going to push and mold that, then he'll go along with that. And if somebody doesn't, then he's just going to roll in and do the thing and then roll back out. Yeah. And, and, you know, he's a 60 some year old man. Also true. He's, he is not as, as young as he used to be. And, you know, this is, um, this is a, a rare opportunity in this particular context because we're actually getting someone plucked from the golden age of Hollywood of noir that that decades later is is getting to do the same shtick. Uh, yeah, especially with this entry, it's is a rare thing. Especially with Farrell and Lovely, it's fascinating because not only is it a retro noir, but it's a retro noir starring an actual act like leading man from the era in a leading man role do yeah doing like i said doing the same shtick like this is i mean mitchum could have done a farewell my lovely in like 1948 and it would have been akin to this obviously there's a lot of and we'll, we'll get into how it being a retro noir kind of changes the adaptation strategy that this employs versus the original ones, but it, it's it's so weird because it, it feels like past and present folding in on each other by dint of Mitchum being the lead as opposed to a Jack Nicholson type coming in and being like, okay, we're all we're all putting on dress. And not to say that like, that Nicholson doesn't do a great job in Chinatown, obviously he does, but there's still that element of like, okay, we're we're all like '70s New Hollywood putting on dress up and paying homage to the thing that we love. But- but here it's like, no, this is doing the thing. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I keep trying to think of other, other examples I, and I'm, I'm coming up, I'm coming up short. Like uh, in, in the late sixties, Jacques Demi pulls uh, Gene Kelly over to France for young girls of Rochefort, which is, he's a delight in and like, but even then that's a closer gap. He's still a ways past his, his golden era, but but you know, you don't often get the you you get old stars being repurposed, but to get them playing the same roles they would have. Right, right. That's it. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is fascinating, and probably the most interesting thing about either of these two movies, in in my opinion. Agreed. Um, and, and and this is this should be clear to everyone that's been listening. I mean, we've been on kind of a. a quality run lately where where things have just been getting um really exciting in in 70s cinema and we've come off a string of classics uh long goodbye and chinatown and night moves and uh and, and farewell my lovely is perhaps not quite on the on the par of those but you perfectly know what? fine movie it's, it's perfectly fine it's not a, a knock to it you have to every genre is going to be made up of of uh uh not just the high points, but a lot of just solid genre fare. And, and I think that's exactly where this falls. Uh, so before we, so just a little more, more context here. So the, uh, one of the producers on this, Kastner, is, we've actually seen a few of his movies recently because he was also a producer on Harper and on The Long Goodbye. 
the uh, you know the seventies long goodbye. So he had a good streak going of detective movies making money, and and specifically noir detective movies making money. And so he he partnered with this British financier, Lou Grade, to bring in the money to actually like provide the the funding to make the movie, and got another Chandler adaptation going after he did the long goodbye. And apparently, he originally wanted Richard Burton to star. Oh. I, okay. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'd roll with it, I guess. But, but you know, they, they clearly were able to get Rick Mitchum. So uh, I'm, I'm happy with that. Agreed. And it, in addition to Mitchum, I mean, this cast is stacked. Uh, yes. You've got a young Sylvester Stallone. I mean, one of his first performances. He's in yeah, two he's scenes. So, he's two so or three scenes. Faced. Oh. So skinny. Uh, you've uh, got Harry Dean Stanton, always great. What's the always uh, reliable Harry Dean Stanton? Yeah, what's the Siskel Siskel line? Right, the like if, if Harry Dean Stanton's in a movie, it can't be bad. Yeah, um, and this is this is pre Paris Texas, so it's oh, mostly yeah. just mostly just Harry Dean Stanton showing up and making a movie better merely by by being being on the scene. Um, he uh, he eventually starts getting more and more to do as people realize what a damn great actor he is. But I always, I always walk, walk away wishing that Harry Dean Stanton was in the movie even more. Right. And it's so interesting because, I mean, they give him, like, as far as bit players, bit parts go, it is a slightly juicier part because he is the cowardly cop who just, like, digs into to Marlowe at every chance he gets and at the end, like, gets out of the car so he doesn't have to go face down with the mob boss. Uh, so, you know, there's something actually there to play. There, He's not just... Uh, window dressing and then uh the so the cuckolded millionaire who is married to charlotte rampling's character uh, here is played by jim thompson who is the pulp author of books like the killer inside me and the getaway so that also feels a little bit like it's pulling on the girl hunters where you've you know you've got mickey spillane obviously playing his actual the lead which was a mistake i was just editing the uh our, our our my camera episode i was re-listening to us talking about that episode i was like that's right that was a bad decision that they put him as the lead in that movie but here jim thompson is in like two scenes and mostly just has to look old and tired and he can do that yeah that's that that's acceptable oh um and and rampling is uh oh, sorry, rampling. is always is always always great i love her uh and and definitely uh, livens things up here yeah i mean so let's where where to begin with this perfectly fine movie uh, i think let's start with let's go back to the, the retro noir right so it's to me the thing that stood out and this came up also in our nightmare alley episode is how much more this movie was leaning into like period details as signifiers of when we are right. So there's the dance competition, there's the Joe DiMaggio and the Dodgers going for um, the record, like the, all those elements that are so clearly being trying to say like, this is the time we're creating the atmosphere of what was going on. We're letting you know when it was, Obviously, it was something that the original didn't need any of the uh, the previous two adaptations it needed to do because 
it just was existing in the moment. And so it could, it could trust on the audience to, to keep up with it. And, and I just always find that fascinating when, when the movie does the exact same story, but it has to be like, and we're going to cut to the radio to give you uh, things that are happening in current events. So you remember like, ah, yes, this is what was going on at the time. It, it does feel like, like there's, there's some, some kind of change, not obviously there is with noir because noir, uh, noir in the, only in the seventies starts being able to look back and set mm-hmm. something, set something in that golden era, but films have been set in the past for as long as there have been films and, and films have been set, uh, you know, it's further removed from our frame of reference, but films have been set in the not distant past, the, in the, in the past of memory. So, you know, there's probably, I'm, I'm sure if I dug through films from the 1930s that were set around the turn of the century, there would be references that are thrown out in there that are probably well over my head, uh, but that are, that are grounding it in that particular time. But, and yet it, it feels, it feels more deliberate here. It feels like this is this along with, with Chinatown, you know, these are, these, these are um, movies that are, are really trying to painstakingly recreate a, a time frame. Uh, different levels of painstaking, perhaps, between those two movies. But, you know, I think you get the idea. It's not just on a yeah. soundstage. And so this, this, your point just now just reminded me of, I uh, watched She'd Done Him Wrong for the first time last year. And that's a movie released in 1933, set at the turn of the century. Uh, and it is a really interesting experience because that's not as far back. Uh, well, I guess that would be as it's far close. back as this, right? Because this is 73 yeah. going back. So yeah, it's actually it's about as yeah, far back. And right. so it is sort of like, you can tell that they are, again, that they're they're putting things up as markers and also as nostalgia in, in that case where they're, they're like, remember when this was a thing? All the men wore wide-brimmed hats and, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. But the movie clearly assumes that you have an emotional connection to that material that as a viewer in 2020, watching a movie from 1930 about the 1890s, you do not have. And I like, there's no nostalgic. And so it, in that sense too, is like, Oh, so this is what's going to be like in 50 years when somebody watches stranger things. Exactly. Here's the the logical extension of it. Right. It's not going over my head. Like stranger things is able to shorthand the eighties in a lot of ways where they're just like, remember that thing. And that's just not going to work after a certain chunk of time. Yeah, you're right. It's got, there's a, there's a fuse on that. It's uh, like, we're right for that. Um, We're right for the eighties right now. And that's why, that's why stranger things can work so well. And I suppose, you know, why something like that 70s show um, or, you know, you you just are, you're trailing the decades by, by a, a little bit, giving a bit of lead time, hitting the right audience, and uh, and then that moment's going to be gone. I mean, we'll see it again towards the end of our season on detectives because there's going to be a few retro noirs that are set in the '70s that were released in the 2010s, and that are essentially looking back at the start of the new noir era with fond memory in the same way that Farewell My Lovely in Chinatown is looking back on the classic noir era with fond memory. Yeah, and Long so, Goodbye is only going to gain um, gain impact. With, yeah, with so that. it's just a, you know, it, it, like you said, it just, it, it, it's the filmmakers who were alive at the time 
who were young at the time, looking back and trying to recreate it. Um, but I think also it's, it's interesting comparing Chinatown and Throw My Lovely because Chinatown doesn't do that. You know what I mean? Like Chinatown is a retro noir and it is invoking the classics of the genre, but it is not doing the same like, remember in 1933 when this was happening and that was happening? My God, what a time. It's just like, we're living in the moment and we're going to get to the story. Whereas this feels a little bit more like the 1940s, huh? No, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you brought up Stranger Things because because Stranger Things is uh, currency is nostalgia and mm-hmm. and that's that's how so many of its beats it's relying on it's relying on that that tremendous sense of nostalgia to to power you through and that's you're right that's not really that different than than what Farewell My Lovely wants it's by you know by virtue of casting. Mitchum in that lead role, that's what we're set up for. Right. Whereas Chinatown, to, yeah. Chinatown's taking big swings. It's got a it's got a big story it wants to tell. It's it's about something else. Right. Right. Uh, and, and I think the interesting thing that complicates the, the nostalgia angle is that this adaptation really brings in a race element that it it I mean it's still a subplot. And it's still primarily about white protagonists and white characters, but it does acknowledge the racism of the time in a way that we haven't really seen from the white-led detective movies we've watched. Yes, Obviously, putting, there's something that's very on its mind for Shaft when we were Trouble Shaft Man, and Trouble sorry. Man, but uh, for the other entries, this is the first like white-led movie that's really gotten into, and obviously there's still... Racism was in the past, huh? Like, remember back then when things were really bad? It's like, okay. Uh, but it's still, it's still interesting that it does acknowledge it. Yeah. Uh, no, I think, uh, I, I think that it's, even though it does acknowledge it though, I think it's kind of in line with that incremental movement we've been mm-hmm. seeing going forward. Um, yes, it's more than we've had before, but, um, you know, we saw, we saw, we saw a little bit more getting into, introduced in, in through the 60s through through Harper um we we we've seen it inch forward right um, and it's still it's still inching uh, right 100% but it's also I mean it, part of it too is just literally you know 10 15 years earlier they would not have been able to show a interracial relationship and screen these movies in the south like yeah. literally it would not have been marketable in those areas because of laws in the book. And so part of it is, is literally the changing legal definitions of, of, of what racism is permitted by the system and, and nakedly avowed by the system. But yeah, because we open up with, so the, uh, the tweaks from the previous adaptations is that when Moose takes Marlowe to the bar he used to go to that uh, Velma used to be at, uh, it's now owned by um it's now a black owned bar and it's largely uh, black um clientele and he you know as in the other versions he kills the owner while trying to get answers but now he's killed a black guy and so when the police show up there's a lot of very direct conversation about like well nobody cares and i think they throw the n-word around i can't remember now in that scene if they do uh, or not 
Um, but, and not in like a Tarantino or worse way, in just sort of like a, it was the 19, late 1930s, early 1940s, and this is how they would have discussed things. It's not pleasant. Like, it's purposely not pleasant. I mean, obviously, your mileage in, in that may vary. But either way, that's just sort of like where part of the movie's mind is at is 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 investing because they bring it up several times of like well when he killed a black guy you didn't care but now he's killed a white person so i guess we actually have a problem on our hands and now he's killing a rich white person that's even worse yeah uh it's um it's it's more it's more engagement than we have gotten previously uh on on that topic and i think that um uh clearly we're we're in store for um, we're in store for that to open up quite a bit more when we get to the '90s. So for now, uh, it it still feels like uh, it feels like we're getting at least a little bit of progress in that in that arena. Right, like you said, it's inches. It's, it's all inches. Yeah. The one other big difference here that I wanted to dig into was the addition of the kid. So in the other versions, they go to the bar she doesn't the ex-girlfriend doesn't work there anymore and they get pointed to uh, another woman who used to work there who's now an alcoholic and her husband's dead and she ends up being like the linchpin for marlo figuring out this conspiracy and she ends up getting murdered later and that that's all holds true across different versions uh what's different here is that there's an extra step from the bar to getting to the um the, the alcoholic woman which is the, the woman with alcoholism which is there's a like former perf- uh, trumpet trumpetist trumpeter saxophonist he played something in the band He's, he was in the band at the bar be- before when the ex-girlfriend played there this is all getting very convoluted it doesn't those details don't matter what's important is uh marlo ends up talking to this guy to get some of these this information and uh, the guy is married in an interracial relationship and he's got a kid and Marlowe has like a couple of scenes with the kid and the kid becomes sort of a like emotional fulcrum for Marlowe of like, I couldn't live with myself thinking about that kid. What I'd have to tell him about his dad. Like, first off, it's the cops jobs to, to you know, the police is going to tell him. not that they do a great job because again, he's leaving behind a, a, a black widow and a black son. And those who we've seen that they're, they're not great <laughs> now or then. Uh, about any of this but it's, it, it's i don't know it, it feels a little out of place for me and a little baldly sentimental in a way that marlo and chandler rarely are um yeah it's not um it's definitely at odds with with the marlo that we have we have seen time and again by now and and i guess i i take it as a, a mention to try and add a little bit more uh, a, a way to add a little more dimension to um, to him, um, which which Mitchum does need in this case because uh, I, I, I he's not um, he he is all presence, but he doesn't have he, you don't feel quite the internal wheels going like uh, like like we did. I mean, we're coming off Elliot Gould, so the I mean, is there anything like in some of this we'll we'll get into with the other? So the, I get or oh, start over here. Uh, so one other, you know, change, we'll see this in both versions, is the increase in, from just from the 70s of it all, the increase of like direct conversation about sex, sex work, drugs, all of that. 
And so, you know, uh, as with other 70s adaptations that we've we've looked at, what used to be um, uh, what used to be subtext is now text. So, for example, the guy who hires Marlowe to help him recover the jade necklace in previous versions was heterosexual. And here everybody's like, well, this, you know, this gay man was going around and he just hangs out with ladies because he's, you know, he can't be his true self in society. And everybody just openly acknowledges it in the dialogue or the fact that here, and this actually is a change from the books. Again, I remember in the book, Marlowe does wind up at a like sanitarium-esque place that he's being sedated by a doctor but here they send him to a uh to a to a like a, 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 a madam a brothel yeah and there's a this madam who is running it and she smacks the crap out of him a couple times and then she sedates him and then this is where we find young stallone is, is, as one of the is it the a, a doctor guns. in the book you yeah it's, it's a you know it's a doctor like the the like, Feral, like my in, lovely version is i mean not Feral, the murder my sweet murder version my sweet. is a pretty faithful adaptation and that is like what how that plays out and that's that's super in keeping with with scenes you see all over the 1940s like that 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 sanitarium kind of right. setting um that that's something that pops up in in a lot of different movies around around that time that right but here it feels like and, as we'll see with the this version of Big Sleep, it feels like uh, let's get let's get some naked ladies in here. Let's get yeah, some, it's some a titillating sex stuff. It, here's the problem when when you have to turn things from subtext to text is that that text lives or dies based on how good the writing is. There's nothing there's mm-hmm. nothing left to the imagination, and mm-hmm. and and this felt not so purposeful. It felt out of place and doesn't doesn't land quite like the the sanitarium does. Agreed. But it does give us a young Stallone, so that's fun. Sure does. Uh, so yeah, those are like the big changes, you know, so I guess the other thing just to, I mean, the other thing we'll talk about are really about Mitchum in both of these, and I think kind of time together. So is there anything specific to this version that you want to dig into? No, I think um, I think that we'll have a little bit in comparing and, and contrasting the, the two, but, uh, but we're in good shape here. Uh, shall we move along and and cover the big sleep? But 1978. <laughs> is still Marlowe, and murder is still murder. In Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, Robert Mitchum is Philip Marlowe. You shoot people, don't you, Mr. Marlowe? I'm a private investigator. All right, so after coming off the success of Farewell, My Lovely, Lou Grade was like, okay, that worked out pretty well. Let's do it again. And brought Mitchum back for another Marlowe adaptation, this time going after the main event itself, The Big Sleep. But this time it's set in the present day, well, the 1978 present day, and it's set in England for some reason. But uh, And we also get Sarah Miles and Candy Clark playing the two Sternwood daughters who are toying with poor Marlo. Uh-huh. But again, it's Marlo getting hired by General, General Sternwood to find out who's blackmailing his daughter, leading him to a pornography ring. But what everyone is really interested in is what happened to the other daughter's missing husband, Rusty Regan. 
which uh, if nothing else, this movie will help you understand what happened in the first version of the movie because it makes it very clear the chain of events that that occur. Yes, um, well, it is. Uh, maybe it's because we've recently watched this story play out before, but it does feel a little less less convoluted here. Then again, we've just been watching this, so. But no, I think uh, it, it, it is it, it, like if you watch this version first, you would just be like, "This makes perfect sense." Like it's not particularly like it, it just lays a lot in a much clearer fashion and i think a big part of that is it keeps the scene where he walks the i don't know what they're called in england the district attorney in the u.s version through the chain of events of the first half of the mystery with the pornography ring murders and then he goes like but i'm still curious about what happened to rusty regan and that that was in the original cut of the 46 big sleep but then that got removed as they also shot a bunch of extra stuff with lauren bacall to up their chemistry and it it really is a key scene because it helps you pivot from one mystery to the other and without it it all just kind of blurs together and you're like okay there's the pornography ring and the dead chauffeur and the sister who's throwing herself at him and the other sister who's playing coy and the missing husband and this gangster and the gambling like it all just becomes this hazy dream in the original uh, 46 version and here it's a much clearer like all right i solved the first mystery but this other mystery is still bothering me i wonder if i can get to the bottom of that one and then we're off to the races on part two but uh stack, we, stack what, cast right like stack cast uh they, if nothing they else, there's a lot of pleasure layers. to be in that it uh, yeah they 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 bring out the the big stars right so we've got good old jimmy stewart as general sternwood which is i don't think i've ever seen him in something where he's this old and it is alarming yeah, uh, a little well bit. you've seen, seen him um because you uh, you you definitely my childhood introduction to jimmy stewart was uh was in five will goes west uh, okay but i didn't see him but i've seen him <laughs> i have not seen him in something where he's been this old and i mean it plays well here because one of the things that everybody talks about is like man general sternwood i'd, I'd hate for him to you know fun, something bad to happen to him and you're just like yeah I, fact, I do too jimmy stewart died the day after robert mitchum no oh. huh. yeah. well that's also i mean that's something we'll get into at, at the end here just with mitchum being so old playing this part and like what that does to these stories so yeah, Jimmy Stewart, you've got Oliver Reed in the gangster role, which also mm-hmm. big Oliver Reed fan. Uh, this is his first uh, appearance Oliver, on the podcast, but Oliver Reed can do no wrong. That guy I mean, is he a, just shows up and does the work. Um he he's so he's intense. Got the physicality. Uh he um got watch watch um Woman in Love. That's it's just uh just a feral performance. Um but he's a he's a great actor. Yeah, just the 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 presence he brings. Anytime he's on screen, it's it's always uh, fascinating. That's the biggest delight of Oliver is watching him go after orphans. <laughs> uh, and also uh, young young Joan Collins. Yeah, why not? Uh, why not? Uh, there's there's definitely a lot to be said for the cast. I don't know if that stretches to Candy Clark, whose performance is absolutely bizarre. I mean, she had to have been uh, directed, especially yeah. there's the flashback scene. So Candy Clark is playing the younger Sternwood daughter as an epileptic who also 
has some kind of like infantile personality, which the movie kind of hints at. And I think this is one of those things where this move, this version goes so hard on clarity that it really wants you to understand, like she is clearly not in her right mind. And that's why she shot Rusty Regan. And this, you know, essentially like this crazy broad, can you believe it is, is not even the subtext, the text of the movie. And so there's, I mean, there's no surprise. Cause just like, yeah, she's not in her right mind. Why is everybody letting her run around and strip naked everywhere she goes? Yeah. It's a, it's a lot. Um, but I, I, and- I, to me, it is so clearly like what is so on the same wavelength as everything else the movie's doing. I can't blame the act. Like, I feel like that's just. That's probably fair. The, what the movie was going for. Uh we should probably mention too that that um, Sarah Miles was not just. I'm sorry, just to finish oh, off with the daughters. Yeah. Sarah Miles, I was also not. I mean, like, I know you were not you're, a Lord McCall compar- fan. We're we're comparing to uh, to a, a a a an actual couple with legendary on screen chemistry. But this one also is not interested in that connection right like and i feel like in this version both sisters are just fucking with marlo whereas in the in the 46 version bacall is actually interested in him and and part of this again is the reshoots to because they wanted to the studios wanted to to have and have not and all that or yeah to have and have not but um so obviously like that that's part of it but it, it she her character has a different function in the 46 version than in the 78 version the 78 version she is just another person toying with him just in a different way than the younger sister yes there's no no um no opening with silhouettes of uh of of smoking um uh smoking bogart and bacall and ending with our smoldering cigarette uh there is there's not really any any chemistry at work here uh, and and you know the movie's smart not to really, um, really uh, try to find that because Mitchum is a sixty-some-year-old man. Yes, uh, and just just to talk again through some of the other changes here from the, the previous version. Obviously, as we mentioned, it's in England. Sure, it, I mean it's uh, it, we've, really we've had a time that. jump too. We yes, we it are has, yes. It, it, Mar- it is seventy eight. Mar- Marlo has transcended uh, specifically. Mitchum's Marlo has transcended time and space, and is oh yeah, in, in it's like it's not a it's not a sequel to them. They're just like we're doing another Mitchum, another Marlo movie with Mitchum, but it's completely different. I mean, like again, Mitchum's not like Mitchum's doing the Mitchum thing in both these movies. So in a certain sense, it is the same Marlo because you like that that through line carries but there is no continuity between these two well films. And, it, and it fits with the the concept that that has held true and uh marlo is a man out of time um you could plot marlo into any any situation and he's gonna sure I, like I, I, it works I, fine but it's not a pointed commentary of the text like it is in the long goodbye no it's not no i I do not think that this movie is trying to actually say anything about that right. whatsoever. It, it is not, but 
but in the grander sense of you know at some point uh, and i'm maybe i guess this this starts with the long goodbye but our our detective is unmoored from from normal conventions of 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 time and space and he um he is he is the archetype and he is you know in whatever scenario we've dropped him into right now that's that's where marlo's at in this movie i guess uh i don't I don't know why England was chosen. I don't have a good. I was reading. I can't remember now. It was either the. I think it was the director wanted. It was some. It was like a because the director's British. So I was just the uh, director is Michael Winner, uh, and he was uh, like a, a a solid B movie. So he did uh, the death. He did Death Wish. Is probably his his most famous like Death Wish. Death Wish Two. He did Death Wish 3. He did uh, The Sentinel, which is sort of an interesting 70s paranoid occult film. Um, so, yeah, he's yeah, just sort of like a really solid workman director, which, uh, but I thought he also, oh, right, he did the, uh, the Turn of the Screw prequel with Marlon Brando as the groundskeeper. But uh, the reason I, I wanted to bring him up too is because the interesting thing about this movie is that it feels like a '70s British like suspense thriller, you know, like right. It, and, and Euro in general, like there's a little bit of giallo to it with all the naked ladies getting putting being put in photo shoots and detective going around, and you know, it's all like it, it's just it's so weird that it's the same pretty similar plot to the big sleep the minor adjustments but it just feels so completely different i mean I, this is barely noir that, right and and so last last week we we hopped out of hollywood and and we and and when we were looking at drowning pool we were jumping all over louisiana and it still felt like they were able to find a lot of the typical noir trappings within within louisiana between new orleans and the bayou and plantations they they dug in and i and i thought pretty successfully at least on that level found found anchor points that are familiar to noir it doesn't quite translate with the the quaint countryside and and villages here it's it it's not it maybe it could have been played that way but it, it isn't it's even just and, the and the camera i don't know the way the camera the moves genre, and yeah. the, the speed that it goes for there is just it's using a different vocabulary and it it is just fascinating to me that again as to that's the interesting thing about this movie to me the, the previous one is that mitchum is essentially replaying the hits and going back in time, but still playing the leading man. And here's that they take the story and they just put a different set of clothes on it. And it just feels so different. And, and again, I think it's part of the clarity thing, right? Cause it is like a suspense thriller that wants you to understand and follow the plot. And the 46 version is like, who cares about the plot? Here's a bunch of vibes. How weird is this? Yeah. Well, we're going to, um, I know as we look ahead, we're going to start seeing um, the detective genre try on a lot of different clothes. And sometimes it's going to change the tone and sometimes it's going to change the setting. And 
and it's going to have varying degrees of success. I mean, I think we know if we look ahead at our, our season to come, there's some bona fide classics there, but there's some that I've not seen and I'm looking forward to. And, uh, and, and I'm sure that there, I'm sure there's going to be that same kind of range of, of quality that we see. I, I'm, I'm really fascinated though with seeing like what works and what doesn't and, and how, how directors go about trying to, to take what's by now an established form. Um, we, we know what the noir story is. We know what the detective's supposed to do. And they're going to try them out in a different place, in a different time, uh, in, in whether it's in a high school or in, uh, uh, or, uh, or in a Toontown. <laughs> you know, we have, we have different, we have different things we're going to try out and why not try the British countryside and see what you can make work here. Right. Um, and, and you could, I, I think you could do this as noir in the, in the British countryside. I'm, I'm confident of that. I think it is just stylistically the way that they go about it and the, where the movie's interest lies is, is not in being a noir and it's not in the, the atmosphere that comes with it, right? And as we've talked about a few times now, that the noir is both genre and style. And so it's not just having the right locations and plot beats and character archetypes. It's also the the feeling of the thing. This is proof positive that you can have a classic noir star playing a classic noir detective with a script, with a with with a script that is the, the same as one to. of the true yeah one of the true classics um and and it can still not quite feel noir yeah uh so just some other like just to in case you haven't watched this movie or just at the interesting differences again we see a lot of the subtext brought up to text here the pornography is explicit i mean we saw we see the younger sternwood daughter naked multiple times the uh pornographers who's in a, a relationship is made explicit here where again as before that was implied um there's drug use there i mean it's just again it's just sort of like we can do these things so we're and this is like we have to and i wouldn't be surprised if there's a feeling of the audience expects these things in this kind of movie and so we need to do it in order to meet the audiences and get them to come out but you know uh, it it doesn't like you said it, it it strips a lot of the the power of the piece by making those things explicit. Uh, I suppose what uh, probably worth mentioning that kind of, par- uh, I, I didn't look up the exact years, but kind of paralleling the releases of these two, um, we have, we have two other uh, very, very big budget, big bloated cast um, detective movies, but they are the Agatha Christie variety. Cause you've got, I think, Pretty it's damn true. close to these two years. Uh, you've got that's Murder on really the Express point. and Death on the Nile coming out, and 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 there's that's probably also kind of partly driving the the trend here. To uh, you know, there there may be different sides of the detective coin, but it lines up pretty neatly with these two releases. I hadn't considered that at all, but now that you've said that, that feels so spot on as as part of. I mean, like we talked about the one of the producers had a lot of detective successes, but I, that especially the way that these casts are so stacked and the way that they use those cast members, it feels like bring out some old goodies and throw them in the mix and you'll, you'll make some money. Yeah. And that's, 
that Hollywood's been doing that for for ages, but it right. always it feels like <laughs> we 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 just keep we keep getting more and more. I mean, there's like you've got bloat in in the epics of the 1950s with you know uh, Round the World in 80 Days, Greatest Show on Earth, that kind of thing, in which Jimmy Stewart plays a clown. So uh, there, that that's probably a little stranger than we have right here. But then you've got all the disaster flicks that are just stuffing everyone that you can right. into, and you've got these murder mystery epics of the the '70s, and uh, and so you know, packing films to the gills with these stars of yesteryear is nothing new. Agreed. I uh, also just wanted to flag they just did not do the bookshop scene this time, which is uh, yeah, I can't blame them for skipping one of the best scenes from the original. Okay. Where, to be to be specific, the the scene where he goes across the street to watch the bookshop and and uh, what's her name is is the the clerk as he uh, yeah there's no Dorothy Malone yeah um, to <laughs> to have but also a, like a you don't want to dalliance see, with I mean as we'll talk about it, it's like because like I said it's it's Mitchum in his sixties and you're like I don't want to watch him flirt with a twenty something sales clerk and you know. Uh, <clears throat> and then also just a little last note, uh, Travel Chess makes another appearance here. Right. Uh, this must be a, a, a thing in the 70s that I, I'm i not aware of at all. Right. Some little sub-trend of like, because again, here, this is not a movie with a lot on its mind. So unlike in Night Moves, where you're like, oh, okay, this is a thematic thing. And as you pointed out, a pun yeah. on the title. Here, it's just like, I'm doing something to kill the time. It's Travel Chess. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Is there anything else that you want to talk about with with this big sleep? Uh, no, I think uh, I think that just about does it. Uh, I I enjoy much like uh, Farewell, My Lovely. I enjoyed this. I think I I leaned a little more toward uh, toward toward Farewell, My Lovely between the two, just because of the classic. We'll save that. Setting. So we're going to get oh, to our updated oh, rankings. No, I'm getting ahead of us. Oh no! Um, <laughs> all right, all right, bring it on. All right, so just well, first, let's just talk about you know it's Mitchum here, right? So Mitchum is the only actor to date to play Marlowe in two film adaptations. That's so wild, but you're right. <laughs> it's it's kind of a shame, honestly, but here we are. Uh, also, to paraphrase the Brimley Cocoon joke, Cruz right now is roughly the same age that Mitchum is in these movies, and God. <laughs> so I mean, part of it is just like health industry and also the way that we smoke and drink has changed and all these things have allowed especially the very rich superstars to preserve their looks and body in a way that wasn't possible at the time but uh, that joke aside you feel Mitchum's age here and it does shift the way these movies work both I think in the choices that are made in the adaptations, like we talked about, there's not as much, especially the second in, in Big Sleep, like they take, they don't do anything along the lines of, um, I mean, both sisters are kind of flirting slash fucking with him, but it's not, there isn't like that kind of connection. They don't do the bookstore clerk scene, the, the store clerk scene, as, as we mentioned in the first one, as in, as before the, um, uh, what's her name? Charlotte Rampling is is trying to seduce him and actually does just start making out with him on the couch as opposed to the original one. Again, Dick Powell is sort of like 
she's flirting with me, but her husband's right there. And now it's just like, I'm going to sit in your lap and kiss you. And Jim Thompson's going to look in through the door and be like, oh, again, oh, I'm so old. Uh, and so it's, but it just, it's so weird because in both of these movies, it's about Marlo dealing with an older man and the younger women in his life and how they're like running roughshod over him. But also Mitchum is closer in age to the older male figure than he is to the women that he's supposed to be like interacting with and sparking off of. I'm going to go out on a limb though and, and say it read, it didn't read anywhere near as jarring then as it does to us now because after all uh we are around the same time smack in the middle of the tenure of a james bond who is not that much younger than uh than mitchum is here very true uh and uh and, and so you know the, like the, one of the tentpole stars of of action movies of this time is is doing much the same and yeah um roger moore probably looks um a little bit little bit younger than Mitchum and his hangdog look does but you still you feel his age still a bit of a, a boiled ham um picture these movies but in, in 1948 1950 with a young Mitchum do you think that would work like would that work better I think that the um I think the thing that holds these movies back a bit isn't it is not necessarily Mitchum's age. It's just that the, we've seen it before. The the best examples of the genre we've come across have had a director who's been really adept at handling the material, and we just don't have we we don't have that here. That's true. I, let me rephrase because that's actually not. I, I agree with you, but that's not what I'm getting at. I'm more, do you think? Mitchum would be better if he was younger because the thing that I'm running up against now is like as much as I love Mitchum he does his thing and even if he was younger and spryer I'm not sure like he'd make a very solid Marlowe no doubt just because he's good like you know he's got presence and he's but I'm not sure he would have been a great Marlowe Bogart and Powell and Gould all are good Marlowe's because they've got a they've got a certain antagonist wit about them that they can bring into a situation that Mitchum doesn't have. Yeah, his vibe is just like a different kind of thing. Like again, he's a he's a very good actor and that's doing a lot of the work, but that final like 10%, I feel like no matter what his age is, would not have been there. There's there's enough the, those other three actors all all are able to be a bit of a smartass uh, like still tough as nails but but like there there's a little bit of a a levity that you feel from them and their interactions with mm-hmm. others uh, and and it's just not the the same with Mitchum yeah and I you know like he's haunted fair, he's haunted yeah. but yeah I mean fair play like I don't think I also don't think Burt Lancaster would have been a good Marlowe. Like the again the um, yeah no I think you're right. So I, I, again, I just want to reference the this essay by um, Porfirio, No Way Out, which is about the existential motifs of noir, and again, just the way the he goes through these actors and sort of really I thought succinctly nails their key attribute and what it is about them that makes them appealing noir protagonists, 
and of that of that group of those like superstar i mean not superstar they were not superstars in their time but of those great noir league men i think bogart's the only one that's really like his persona because all these guys kind of did the same thing each time is just what they did lined up so nicely with noir as a whole but i think and even potentially playing private detectives but specifically with Marlowe. I feel like Bogart's the only one of those great actors whose persona really aligns with what you need from a great Marlowe. Yeah, I I think that's spot on. And there's a reason that Bogart got got an episode devoted to him. And right. I I I would I would gladly watch an episode uh, or record an episode with just Mitchum or just Lancaster or any of these other Titans, but Bogart set the template here and, and yeah, he's specific to this archetype. Yeah. There's no, there's no beating it. All right. So uh, now that we've sort of given the game away, let's do some Ah, rankings. Uh, All right. So we'll start with the adaptations. As with last time, we are going to include Falcon takes over in time to kill as adaptations, but we're not going to include them as Marlowe as Marlowe's because they're not Marlowe's uh, or those actors are not playing Marlowe. So we, we won't, we won't consider them the, the second part of this. So we'll just kind of talk through it live. I, I mean, I haven't really put a lot of thought in prepping for this. I don't know if you have either, but um, uh, no, I have not, I have not put any thought into prepping. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're off okay. the cuff here. Uh, I feel like again, let's start from the top and work our way down. Cause I feel like that's going to be where more of the surprises are going to be. I don't know. Uh, top top to down i don't know yeah i i guess i think we'll be in fair alignment right but, yeah it's probably um, gonna be like grouped roughly together like i think there's yeah. clear tiers of adaptations and marlowe's and then within those tiers there might be some up and down all right well what's your top marlowe fred top oh or god top i suppose just we do it this way but i'm already like you're regretting it you want to go the other way i get it i i, get I, it. St- I can't make up I, Big Sleep and Long Goodbye are both so good in such different ways. I think I'm going to have to go with Big Sleep. Uh, well, I will counter you and I will go with Long Goodbye. Uh, oh, interesting. Which, well, you are, yeah, you are an Altman. I, I, was, I thought I, you were going to go with Altman, I'm an Altman fan and I was, uh, I was just so... And Big Sleep 46, to, to be clear. Oh, I was wondering. <laughs> uh, yeah, Big Sleep 78. Top, top pick. <laughs> no, I, I mean, certainly can't fault you for... Um, can't fault you for for big sleep for the top but uh but god i was so happy to get to revisit the long goodbye and uh definitely one of my my favorites that we've gone through in this entire series i can't fault you though also so yeah my second pick obviously is is the long goodbye is your second pick murder my sweet my second pick is murder my sweet yeah i um i really liked that uh, a, gr- a great find for me uh one that i had not seen before this and i'm i i I just thought that uh it worked uh even though even though bogart's the better marlowe spoiler (laughs) not spoiler at all but (laughs) even though bogart's the better marlowe than dick powell um powell's certainly solid and and the whole thing was just uh i thought uh, quite well directed sure i i I won't argue is my third so big sleep's your third and my third is murder my sweet so like i said i feel like that is our top tier Marlowe adaptations are those three so if you are listening and you need to to pick and choose which Marlowe adaptations you're going to see we've just narrowed it down to three for you 
And please, uh, if you want to like email us and be, tell us we're please. wrong, our email address is celluloiddirt at gmail.com. Feel free to send us an angry diatribe or a pleasant one. We'll accept pleasant diatribes as well. Stand by for the Falcon Takes Over fans. <laughs> yeah, they're coming in, uh, coming in hot. Uh, all right. So that, that's our top tier. That's sort of squared away. Um, all right. So next, like the solid ones. What's your number four? Uh, I I would go with mm, I'm going to go with Farewell with My Lovely. Actually, um, I think it, uh, it 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 does the job. Um, not, doesn't revolutionize anything, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, and you know, having having Mitchum on hand, uh, perhaps not one of his greatest performances, but never mad to be with him. I'm going to go with Big Sleep '78. Ah, ah, very nice. It is barely noir, but. I do enjoy that 70s British hero thriller movie and it's like mood. Yeah, it's it's doing a very different thing, but on its own, I take it on its own value. I was like, I I liked I enjoyed this and it moved. Like that was another thing I appreciated. I was like, this this has some get up and go to it. So that's my number four. What's your number five? Um I'm gonna go next with Time to Kill. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, um, kind of sim- similar to uh, Farewell, My Lovely. I don't think it was breaking any new ground, but but just a really solid genre picture that that um, that I thought um, was was executed pretty competently, and I enjoyed it. I'm also going to go with Time to Kill for my number five. I agree. It it it's it's so early noir that if it had been made five years later, it could have been a real classic. If there's a you know if a director had come in and be able to see what other people had already done and kind of like tapped into that more, but it is really good at what it's doing. Yeah. Uh, uh, six. There's a lot uh, of things we had to keep track of, which was already done. There are. Uh, I'm gonna go. I'll go with the uh, Big Sleep '78. Uh, certainly had its um, has its moments, and again, much like you said, it it isn't noir, but the, there's a certain vibe going on there that is generally my kind of pace so i i liked it i'm gonna go marlo uh again like really just it's doing its thing and it didn't blow me out of the water but it was enjoyable it's got uh what's her name doing a full dance routine at the end so uh, uh rita moreno yeah, coming rita in moreno and like is, you can't be rita moreno no it's, it's i'm going with marlo next for for mine as well uh yes this is what seven um, I um, I do believe that I have three left unnamed. So wherever that puts us, I don't know. Big anyway, surprise! So what those those three are. So yeah, so you did you did Marlo next for you, um, yes. and I'm going to close out my mid tier with uh, Farewell, My Lovely. I just I gotta say the first couple of minutes, and I, I, I this the first couple of minutes when Marlo's standing in the window. And he's like really leaning into I'm an old man and I'm and I'm doing this and I've seen a lot in that that opening monologue. That I, those first couple of minutes, I was like, this is gonna say something. This is gonna say something and do something, and I'm really excited for it. And then it just kind of fell away, and the rest of the movie just felt really by the numbers to me. And so by the end of it, I was like, this is fine. And I it, it has a lot of appreciators out there. I'm glad to sit in for you. I was just like, it just was really just doing the minimum for me. 
to, to be clear, this whole mid-tier, um, there's not a tremendous difference. I'm, I'm, I think on Letterboxd, yeah. there's probably a half a star difference <laughs> yeah. for me between, between the, every, the thing at the top of this tier and the bottom of this tier. They, I, I disliked none of them. They're all, they're all Agreed. solid. They're not, not doing anything amazing. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying like, yeah, I'm not saying Fear My Love is bad. It was just of those that are all like fine. It was one that was most didn't hit the, gave me the least to grab onto and get excited about. And the others gave me just a little bit more texture where I was like, oh, this is interesting. I, I'm, I'm enjoying this a little bit more. Okay. All right. So now it's, like I said, the, the bottom tier. Bottom of our, tier time. All right. Oh, so we've, as, as of our, last time, our, our I mean, half episode. Yeah. It's, it's the same, same with the, same group at the bottom three here we've got falcon takes over <clears throat> lady in the lake and brash of doubloon so what's your uh top of the bottom oh my goodness um i know this is different than yours but my top of the bottom is lady in the lake and it's only because that movie is such a that movie is a mess it is structurally a mess it it, it does not work but it at least does take a swing and and for that reason alone, I'm giving it, I'm, I'm propping it up above the other two. Sure. Uh, you know, in retrospect, we should have started at the bottom and made our way to the top because the bottom is the same as it was last time, but the middle and the top are actually where the exciting action is. So <laughs> we can just go through these because it's going to be the same arguments as last time. And my order hasn't changed. Without a doubt, yours has either. either. So if you really want more details about this, you can go listen to our first <laughs> Other Marlowe's episode. Uh, so yeah, I mean, my next one down would be Falcon Takes Over. It's not a great noir. It's a barely functional gentleman detective, but it's doing the thing that it's doing. Okay. It's it's it totally doesn't know quite what it is because it's caught between genres and uh, yeah. at an odd time. Uh, What's next for so, you? Stuff, uh, the Falcon Takes Over is in the middle for for me and. Yeah, Brasher to Balloons next for me. It's a functional movie with a charisma black hole at the center. And so it's uh that's yeah, where it lands for uh, me. And then what's your last one? Oh, Brasher to Balloon is Brasher to Balloon, because George Montgomery is just a creep in that movie. It, George George Montgomery is it, it, oh oh god. Um it's rough. It's and I'm rough. still angry about Lady in the Lake, so that's my bottom pick. That's fair. I can't. I can't fault you. Lady in the Lake is a mess, but uh, it's uh, again. It, it, it at least tries to do something. I, I respect your choice, but I disagree. <laughs> All right, so let's rank in the reverse order for our Marlows. Uh, so, and there's two fewer, so we'll go through this a little bit faster here. Uh, all right, what's your worst Marlow? Robert Montgomery. Robert Montgomery. Robert Montgomery. Really, Robert Montgomery from Lady in the Lake. Uh, uh from uh, or uh, whoa. Whoa, am I? George Montgomery is uh, pressure to balloon. George Montgomery, yes, George Montgomery. Whoa, getting the, getting the. I mean, it's two back-to-back Montgomerys, but so I I get it. Yes. Yeah, George Montgomery is um, pressure to balloon dead last. Yeah, I I would agree with you there. Uh, Next up for you Um, would be Robert Montgomery. They just give him nothing to do. I, I've, no, he, you, he, he can't act. He can't, he can't do really just the opportunity. To, right? Yeah, you're not saying like yeah. as an actor he can't act. You're saying no, that the movie gives him no opportunity. He cannot to do act. anything within the confines of what the film. Yeah, has he's like do. narrating or he's giving direct address to the audience, and it's just like this yeah. is. Um, but it's still better than George Montgomery. Hill <laughs> is an improvement. All right, so that's oh, like my. the the bottom of the the barrel here. Uh, who's next for you? 
Um, it definitely gets better after that, thank goodness. But um, but James Garner, um, yeah, James he's, Garner, he's, um, in Marlowe, he's perfectly fine. Uh, he's fine, but uh, but not he's not, not on star. the level of the legends. No, he's not a he even Dick Powell is more of a movie star than than James Garner. Uh, yeah, Robert Mitchum would be next for me after Garner, um, just because he like the reasons movies work are because he is still has a lot of presence, but as a Marlowe, he is just not like like we talked about the persona and the character just don't mesh quite correctly for me. Yeah, same um, total. I think we're going to be in lockstep this this whole way, aren't we? Huh? Um, <sighs> I don't know. See. Again, I'm I'm very divided at my my. But okay, what's what's next for you? Um, I, as much as I love uh, Murder My Sweet, uh, Dick Powell would be yeah. my my third pick. He's he's quite good. He's, he's working just, hard. He he's doing what he needs to do. Um, I think as a career reinvention for him, um, he's pretty successful at that, as far as you could expect from a, a song and dance man. But you know, from here on out, we're we're dealing with with uh, top tier picks. Yeah, you know. I went back and forth because I really do love that movie, but I think Gould has to be my second second pick, my number two. Oh, I'm, I, I, I can't. I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I can't, I can't knock Bogart from his signature. It's just so role. good, uh, and uh, he's 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 so good. He is the embodiment of of Marlowe, and it's uh, perhaps perhaps unfair because Elliot Gould in in. Uh, Long Goodbye is is to me the stuff of legend, but so is Bogart. <laughs> it's I mean it's a great performance and is probably more like acting, but as we talked about a few times now, just the persona of Bogart and the character are so is a perfect Venn diagram. There's just one circle. You're just like that's it. That's that's what it is. Did you notice the um, in the seventy eight Big Sleep when Mitchum comes in? And the younger daughters sees him, you know. In the original, she goes, "You're so short," and then they have a playful repartee. And here, she goes, "You're so tall." <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> I like, funny. I see yeah. what you did there. Uh, that that scene in particular played so it was it played strange in the in the big sleep, but but it's staged well, and it plays so so weirdly in yeah. seventy eight. Uh, but you know, clever. Uh, a clever remark. I get it. Uh, so yeah, I just want to shout out a couple of other um, film, quasi-film performances that we we will not be talking about in this series. We may have... So there's uh, recently departed James Conn, who, who just passed away within the last week of our recording of this episode, was in Poodle Springs for HBO. Um, it was a HBO movie. And he also plays another older... Marlowe. And then uh, as we talked about previously, Danny Glover plays Marlowe in an episode of Fallen Angels, which is an adaptation of a, one of the short stories instead of one of the novels. And still trying to find a way to watch that because it is hard to get a hold of. But both aren't like theatrical releases, so we're not doing them as part of this, this season. We're really trying to lock in on the most interesting ways to kind of assess how the genre has changed. But uh, we have the upcoming Liam Neeson Marlowe, where Liam Neeson also will be playing a very old Marlowe. Apparently, that's it. Like, after Mitchum, it was just like, all right, the only Marlowe is an old one. That might be a good opportunity to also go back and look at the James Conn version. 
and pair yeah. those two together. So we, we might still get a chance to, to, to look at that for the show. All right. That's, but that's the last of the Marlowe's for our, our main series here. We've uh, had a lot of them. We've had a lot of them. And of you don't have to listen to us rank them ever again. Yeah. Unless we do this episode in the future. And then we'll, we'll do another. <laughs> I, I have a feeling that it'll again be some mid-tier movement. Yes. <laughs> Would be my guess. In which case we might just skip the, the bottom and the top and just say refer to this episode to get the full ranking. <laughs> All right. So as usual. What's in the box? In honor, Kiss Me Deadly. What's something you recently watched that's so good it deserves to be glowing in the suitcase? Well, it took long enough, but I finally caught up with Memoria. Uh, or it caught I, up you texted me. You sent me a picture of I your, your ghost stubs. My, my, uh, my plan was thwarted to go see it, and then it was like sporadically uh, playing. And I am, I am happy to report, and yes, true, it, was not, it didn't have that many screenings here. Uh, aside from... From Spider-Man, uh, that was the most crowded I've been in a theater since um, since I've started going back. Uh, so that was nice to know that that uh, that where Stakul can still can bring in a crowd. Uh, it was you know probably one of like three showings on a given week here in in New Orleans when it was playing, but I'll take it. it, was, it was like good. that Neon's release strategy for that, where they just the the constantly rolling art installation essentially that will never be on streaming uh, according to them is fascinating to me i i hope it works i i hope so it seemed it seemed to be working there were more there were more people in that screening than when i went to see thor uh there there yeah really only only spider-man of everything i've seen theater since since covid um only spider-man had more um so that's cool and it's a really good movie uh, I, I am definitely someone who buys in pretty easily to what Wes likes to, to do. Um, but this, this is such a departure for, for him being his first out, outside, uh, he's in, uh, he's in Columbia, um, uh, and right. with an English speaking actor and with Swinton. Tilda Swinton, of course, um, uh, it takes a little bit of time for you to get on its wavelength, but I think that's, that's true of all of his films. And, and I don't, it didn't quite get me to the, the transcendental place that uncle boon me did, but it was pretty close. Uh, I, by, by the, by the time the film is, is, I don't know it, this is, a, it's over two hours. It, it kind of just drifts by though. At some point I was like, Oh, it's over already. Uh, and, and and I realized that I already kind of was under the the spell of it. Um, it just it moves at its own pace, but it teaches you its rules as it goes along. Uh, yeah, I know last you, year was a yeah, last year was a great year for slow cinema. Between that and Drive My Car, just two absolute yeah. modern masterpieces of of the movement. Absolutely. Um, so if Memoria is playing in a city near you. And you're just I also, I mean, like you gotta, and, you gotta be and, willing and to do the... uh, I, I won't lie. There were, there were a couple people that walked out of, I'm of sure. it while I was wa- watching. Um, yeah. It is, it is perhaps not for everyone, but it's got Tilda. She's quite good. Uh, she's not showy good. Like, like we are used to her being, but. Um, late. But no, it's a very stripped down performance, but very yes. good. Uh, yeah. I mean, and it's just uh, one of the things I love about cinema in general, just how it, it accrues power as it goes along and then is definitely of a piece with 
Schrader's transcendental style because then it it always builds to some kind of cathartic moment and you're just like oh my god and the finale of i mean just thinking about it now gives me goosebumps so maybe i'm just an artsy farsi bastard with his head up his ass but i Memoria, my kind of my kind of shit it it worked i to me it played it played closer to to um tropical malady um on, mm. on that kind of level than it did to uncle boon me which is which is a bit more mystical yes um, well but, uncle boon me is definitely still my top but this is a this was a close second for me yeah i uh i really liked it what about you fred what have you been watching uh i well i watched a lot of Jurassic Park movies, uh, not the new ones, just the older ones, which was an interesting exercise. But I'm actually here You're building to... up to the to the true no, master. I stopped at three. I just like I, I made it to three, and I was like, "This is enough. I'm good." <laughs> uh, no, I'm actually going to recommend Identifying Features from 2020, uh, which was directed and written by Fernanda Valadez. Vel- 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 and it follows a mother in Mexico who goes searching for her missing son uh, who traveled across the border into the U.S. She ends up meeting up with uh, another young man who's been deported from the U.S. and is looking for his mother. And it's a drama, but it's really a horror movie about U.S. border policy and the hell that we've created south of the border. And it starts off in a very traditional indie drama kind of like shallow, uh, a very traditional indie drama thing. But then it really does move into a much more expressionistic space in the back half. And I don't want to get too too much into it because it it, it takes you by surprise and it, it goes some places. But also... Again, to me, it felt a uh, piece with transcendental style, but instead of the usual repressed character emotion eventually giving way to catharsis, this was just a repressive bureaucratic state giving away to a lawless hell. And uh, it, 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 is, it, it arrives at a very moving place that I, I highly recommend. Also, if you're a fan of uh, Roberto Bolliano, um Oh. I would. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> yeah, it it, uh, it reminds me a lot of, especially 2666 in the San, the fictional Santa Teresa of that that novel. In again, how it just sort of takes uh, it turns the bureaucratic state of of border policy and and cross border crime in turns it into uh, almost Lovecraftian cosmic horror of something that you can't understand or reason with or interact with on a human level it is just an oppressive elemental force that you can only hope to survive. It is a really great movie and I'm very excited for what this director does next. I am very interested in that now. Uh, that was it's not on HBO right that. now. So it's, if oh. you have HBO, it's easily accessible. Splendid. All right. All right. Well, we thought this was going to be a quick one, but it turned out to be average length, uh, in part because there's so many damn Marlows to rank at the end. Fortunately, we will not do that to you again for at least a little while. Thank you, as rank always. Everything. <laughs> rank everything. That's really modern movie criticism is, is just based <laughs> on lists. So we'll just keep giving you more lists so you can argue with us and tell us how we're wrong. 
Thanks, as always, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com. You can send us complaints at celluloiddirt at gmail.com. And you can find us on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt, where you can trash all our reviews. Actually, we don't really have reviews, which I post saying you can check us out, but you can trash those too. We'll be moving on from England to another set of international locales to assess how the detective continues to evolve as we head into the 80s. First, next week, we'll have 1979's The Elephant God, which marks a surprise appearance by Satyajit Ray, who uh, Tristan has really been pushing for to make an appearance. So this is the the result of his hard work and diligence. And then we'll also have my pick for next week, which is 1981's Yokohama BJ Blues, uh, which is going to continue the 70s bad vibes in Japan. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>